Questions and Answers with Sheikh Ibrahim Mouas. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Very good evening. This is Questions and Answers. I'm Khawa Salomon and in studio the resident imam out at the Yusufia Masjid in Weinberg. That is where the bus terminus taxis and the station is. Um, Yusufia Masjid Weinberg, Sheikh Ibrahim was. Sheikh has made himself available once again for your questions to be answered on 47913. That's our SMS line. Uh, in studio, unfortunately, we're not taking calls, but downstairs at reception during office hours, 021-442-3500. Our fax line is also available for your questions to come through, 021-4477-271. Um, if you are listening to us over the lands uh, and the beautiful seas, please do connect with us via our Facebook page, The Voice of the Cape, and uh, make an attention to Yasmina Peterson, uh, The Voice of the Cape, questions and answers show every Saturday between 6 and 7 p.m. We do have Maghrib beating us right in the middle. Um, I think we will break at about quarter past, inshallah, but Maghrib Badan for today will be at 20 past 6. 20 past 6 is Maghrib, so we'll break for that, but we will continue the show after that. So uh, we welcome Sheikh. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh Ibrahim. Wa alaikum assalam, rahmatullah. How are you doing today? Uh, Very well, alhamdulillah, and shukran so much for being available and answering our questions for today. Uh, our first segment, Sheikh, and a nice short and sweet question. I'm sure the answer is not going to be as uh, simple as that. But the first one reads, assalamu alaikum, Sheikh and khawa, wa alaikum salam. Sheikh, now are here extensions permissible in Islam? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillah rabbil alameen, wa salatu wa salamu ala ashrafil anbiya wal mursaleen, Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Of course, uh, we find that uh, part of modernity and uh, modern lifestyle has led to, you know, uh, women especially uh, taking on um, uh, extensions, hair extensions, wearing wigs and, and stuff like that. And fortunately for us, we find that uh, the Prophet sallallahu had in fact mentioned this in some of his ahadith. And uh, there's consensus and agreement amongst all scholars that, uh, you know, uh, having extensions of human hair, actually taking a, a another person's hair and extending it onto your hair, this is something which the Prophet ﷺ had totally prohibited. Uh, in fact, he had cursed people that does that, uh, whether it is the person who's doing it or the person who has requested it be done for her. Both will be cursed by Allah Ta'ala And that is, uh, as I said, if it is human hair extensions okay. um, uh, Another category that may be equated to that Is also uh, extensions of hair that is najis, for example Taken from animals that is najis Like uh, pigs or dogs or, or like that That obviously will also take a similar ruling Because we are not allowed to obviously um, Put uh, things of najis on our bodies, uh, etc We, in fact, as Muslims We try to stay clear of najis as much as we can And to be as pure as possible in our daily life uh, now, when it comes to extensions and wigs, for example, that are not made from human hair, but that are made from, let's say, synthetic materials, um, we find that here scholars have disagreed you know, on this matter. Uh, should it be the same as the original ruling saying that the Prophet had cursed people that has extensions? This is certainly a view that uh, a lot of scholars have adopted. Right? A lot of madahib had adopted this view that 
the Prophet had generally spoken out against any type of extensions, so it should not be limited or restricted only to human extensions, but any kind of false uh, extensions or things like that should be prohibited. We find, however, there are some madahib that gives leeway for the usage of this. Uh, and particularly in the in the Hanafi madhab, I've seen that they are the most lenient or the most accommodating when it comes to hair extensions that are not taken from humans and that are not, not taken from a najis uh, source or impure source. Uh, they, in fact, uh, seems to not have an issue with that. Uh, and there are some indications in, in the books of hadith uh, about this. Uh, in fact, Abu Dawood, uh, the great hadith scholar, he narrates from Sa'id ibn Jubair. And Sa'id ibn Jubair is not a companion, but he's a, a tabi'i that had met many of the companions. So he narrates uh, and uh, on this topic and he says, La ba'sa bil qaramil. There is no problem in wearing what is called karamil. Now this word karamil, uh, they explain what it is. They say it means khuyutun min haririn awsuf yu'malu dhafair tasilu bihi al-mar'atu sha'raha. The explain, explanation of what karamil is, it's like strands of hair taken either from taken either from silk or taken from wool or taken from any other fabric and they actually make plaits which is extended onto the hair. Mm. Uh, so it's not taken from humans, but it's taken from synthetic materials. So uh, uh, according to Sa'id ibn Jubair, in this particular narration that is narrated by Abu Dawood, there's no problem in that. And uh, Abu Dawood himself makes a comment as well. And he says, قَالَ أَبُوْ دَاوُدْ كَانَ أَحْمَدُ يَقُولُ الْقَرَامِلْ لَيْسَ بِهِ بَأْسِ Abu Dawood also says that Ahmed ibn Hanbal rahimahullah used to say that the extension of this nature, there is no problem in it whatsoever. So we do make a distinction between the two types of extensions to hair. If it is of a human kind uh, or of a najis origin, then obviously it is totally haram and there's consensus on that. Uh, the Prophet had cursed people that did that. Uh, but if it is extensions uh, not of a human nature and not of a najis back there, uh, background, uh, then there is permissibility for it. According to some scholars, there's, not, there's still ikhtilaf and difference of opinion on it, but there are a number of scholars that actually seems to uh, say that it is permissible. So we would say to women, look, if there's no necessity to, to do this, then one should refrain from doing it, mm. right? But if there is a necessity, and I believe there could be necessities in, 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 in a person's life, uh, for example, we find uh, a lot of times uh, people that are sick, for example, you know, um, that have cancer and they've lost their hair and stuff like that, and it can uh, affect their image, it can affect their self-esteem and stuff like this. So if that is the case, they could possibly follow the more lenient view on the synthetic kind of extensions and as well as uh, wearing synthetic uh, 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 hairs uh, taken from cotton or taken from anything else. Uh, according to this group of scholars, that would be allowed, inshallah. Jazakallah, Sheikh, on clarifying that matter. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Uh, shukran so much for this program. Sheikh, as I've grown up, I was told that not I was told not to read the Bible, even though I was curious. Now that I'm all grown up, is it permissible to read through the Bible to see what it says? Yeah, of course, uh, as Muslims, we believe that the Bibles uh, that, that is present today have been distorted and have been uh, obviously tampered with. So it's not the original uh, Torah, that w original Injil rather, that was revealed to Nabi Isa alayhi salatu wasalam. Whilst we believe in the Injil that was, uh, that was revealed to Isa and we believe in the Torah that was revealed to Nabi Musa and we believe in the Zabur or the, the Psalms that was uh, actually uh, revealed to Nabi Dawood alayhi salam. We believe in all these scriptures. 
But to actually uh, say that we have them today, uh, obviously that cannot be proven. And we know things have been altered quite a bit. Uh, so because of that, and Allah says in the Quran, uh, Allah says, Woe unto those people who write the book with their own hands, then they claim that this comes from Allah. Mm. Because this is what uh, people used to do with regards to the Bible and with regards to the Torah. They used to add things and alter it and tamper with it and still claim that it comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so scholars have basically made distinctions between two types of people. If it is an ordinary lay person whose uh, knowledge is very limited, uh, then obviously it is not advisable to read the Bible simply because you cannot make distinction of what is correct and what is not correct, what has been tampered with and what has not been tampered with. So obviously you may read things which you think is true, but it's not actually true. Mm -hmm. So it's obviously not then allowed for you to read the Bible because you, you may you know, be misguided by reading things which you are not aware of. But if it is somebody that has a background, it has knowledge, that knows about comparative religion, that knows about you know the tampering of the Bible and so on and so forth, if if it's that kind of person, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani in his book Fathul Bari points out that if this is the case and a person has that uh, you know ability, then it is nothing wrong for him to read the Bible in order to make comparisons between the Bible and the Quran. Mm. And of course, we know that the Quran really it contains everything that the Bible and the Torah and all other books have is to be found in the Quran okay. because the Quran is the final scripture it came to complete everything else mm. so all the information that is in the two books you will find it in the Quran plus a lot of extra no. things mm. right so you don't actually need to go to any other books so uh, that is the distinction we make between two different types of people uh, for the scholar there is no problem but for the lay person who doesn't have the background they may be misguided by thinking that what they are reading is the truth while it is not since a lot of tampering had in fact taken place. From myself, Hawassalun, we're going to take a short break. When we get back, uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Wurs is back answering your questions. Questions and answers with Sheikh Ibrahim Wurs. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Very good evening. Welcome back. This is Questions and Answers. I'm Hawa Solomon, and we are receiving your SMSs on four. 7913 that's our sms line just go and get some some air time and send through your questions um because we don't want to miss your questions if you are sending it via a whatsapp line note that uh, sheikh ibrahim was answers your questions in studio between six and seven at the moment it is it is a bit shortened um because of maghrib but you are more than welcome to attend sheikh's classes which is at the yusufia masjid in weinberg and you can get those details at reception 021 so, Sheikh, our next question is, Assalamu alaikum, Khawa Sheikh. I've come across an incident where I was at a friend's home and when the adhan for Maghrib went, all she did was turn the volume of the television down instead of switching it off completely. Now, can Sheikh kindly advise what should be done when one is watching TV and the waqt of Maghrib or any other waqt is nearing? What is the etiquette? Yeah, the, the adab with regards to the adhan going off is obviously uh, to switch off the TV completely and to respond to the adhan. You know, um, not to be still watching TV uh, while the sound is off, for example. So in other words, your focus is still on watching 
and you're not uh, paying any attention to the adhan and actually answering the adhan. So obviously uh, the adab would be to switch off the TV completely and to respond. We know it's a great sunnah as the mu'adhin is making adhan to actually repeat the words of the adhan as he is saying the adhan to also repeat those words as a reminder for yourself. And I think for the, the waqt of maghrib it becomes even more pertinent because we know the waqt of maghrib is very short. So uh, it's obviously then required from you to immediately embark on performing the salah of maghrib. But for all other awqat, the same would apply. I would say that the adab is really to give your full attention to the adhan, to switch off the TV completely, not only the sound, and uh, actually to uh, repeat the words of the adhan, and then also to make the dua after the adhan. You know, these are all things that you are going to miss if you do not uh, switch off the TV, or if your focus really is not on the adhan that is that is given. So that would definitely be the adab to follow as far as that is concerned. We will find that scholars go so far where they say to you, for example, that if you are reciting Quran, مثلاً, let's say, and uh, the adhan is going off, what should you then do? Scholars actually tell you, although Quran is one of the greatest form of ibadah and worship and, and like that, it is actually recommended for you to stop reciting and to actually respond to the adhan. Mm. And you can obviously continue with your recital after the adhan has been completed. Now you can think for yourself, if this is what scholars say about the Quran, the Quran being recited, what's still about watching TV? Words, yeah. yeah, What's still about the TV, you know? And just the point that you mentioned with regards to Ramadan coming up, uh, I think it's so important uh, comment or observation, and that is, you know, Ramadan should be a month of uh, spiritual training and spiritual development. And uh, I think it's a, it would be a very good idea if we can all sort of take some time out from our social media, from our phones, from our tablets, from the television. I mean, take time out and say, in this month, inshallah, my goal is not to be engaged in any of these things because I want my soul to thrive. I don't want uh, you know, uh, my soul to be contaminated with things that I'm going to see or things that I'm going to hear or things that I'm going to be listening to. So uh, I think it's a very good suggestion, you know, if one can sort of not only fast from food and drink, but also fast from phones and cell phones and tablets and internet and tel uh, television and all these things that are obviously distractions for us. Uh, I think that would be a wonderful uh, gesture that a person or a wonderful niya rather that a person should be making for the month of Ramadan and it is difficult we know our phones have become so much part of our lives but I think uh, you know we should make those sacrifices and you will see during that period of time when you cut yourself off from your phone whether it be a day or two or three you'll feel that physically and psychologically and mentally uh, you feel a different person you know you feel more refreshed you don't you don't feel so clogged up you don't your mind is not preoccupied with so many different things and so I imagine you do it for a whole 30 days, you know, where you don't go surf on the internet and you don't wor worry with Facebook. And I think that should be a niyyah that all of us make, in fact, for the month of Ramadan. Uh, and in that way, I think we will really benefit fully from the month which is about to enter into our lives, inshallah. Allah give us all that opportunity. Amin. Jazakallah, inshallah. May we heed. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Can zakah and fitrah be given to non-Muslims? Yeah, the general ruling, uh, according to the vast majority of ulama, is that uh, sadaqah uh, in the form of zakah, which is your, your compulsory zakah that must be given, and that obviously includes zakatul fitr, can only be given to Muslims. Right, And of course there's a well-known hadith that serves as a basis for this. The hadith is to be found in Sahih al-Bukhari and Muslim where the Prophet ﷺ had said 
uh, when he sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal to Yemen, he gave him a, a number of instructions. He told him that you should teach them about the Arkan of Islam, you should first teach them about the Shahada. Uh, if they accept the Shahada, you should tell them about the Salah. If they then accept the Salah, then you should tell them about the Zakah. And when he came to the Zakah, he said to Mu'adh ibn Jabal that he must say to them the following, أَعَلِمْهُمْ أَنَّ عَلَيْهِمْ صَدَقَةً تُؤْخَذُ مِنْ أَغْنِيَائِهِمْ you should tell them that this is a charity it is taken from the wealthy amongst them and it is given to the poor amongst them and the key word here is amongst them meaning amongst the Muslims so since it is only Muslims that pay the uh, compulsory charity of zakah it is only obvious and logical that the recipients would also be Muslims, right? And this is something which I said the vast majority of ulama had obviously taken this view. The Shafi'i madhab is quite clear on it, uh, the Maliki madhab is quite clear on it, etc. Uh, although there are individual scholars that had uh, some difference of opinion on this, most uh, scholars are saying that uh, zakah must be taken only from the wealthy amongst the Muslims and it is only given to the poor amongst the Muslims. I want to however say this does not mean that we as a Muslim community should neglect the poor and the needy that are of a different faith right that doesn't mean we, we must neglect them we must still look after them or we should at least try to assist them in other ways that we can not your compulsory zakah not your zakatul fitr but you can give them voluntary sadaqah so if it's your neighbor if it's your friend uh, if it's your colleague at work or if it's somebody that you know at your child's school that you know are struggling even if they are non-muslim you should try to assist them Give them sadaqah, you know, give them any kind of voluntary uh, charity. And that, of course, will be a great act of ibadah that you are performing. And we should be having that concern to our non-Muslim brethren as well. Uh, not only to Muslims, but it's only the, uh, the, the zakah. It has specific laws and rules, uh, as I mentioned. So that is obviously only for Muslims. But any other form of charity, we should be open-hearted towards our non-Muslim friends and neighbors as well and particularly in this forthcoming month of ramadan Sheikh, what should absolutely if yeah. more so in the month of ramadan we should open our hearts to all poor people you know and not it will be great if we can have a kitty for the zakatul fitr for example mm. and that money will obviously be used to feed people that are muslim but we have another kitty just for general you know general sadaqat and alhamdulillah i think our people are quite open-hearted in the month of ramadan and we should have a kitty where we collect general uh, voluntary sadaqah and from that voluntary sadaqah, we should make up parcels for the non-Muslims as well in our community. Give them also a chance to obviously uh, be fed and, and enjoy some of the uh, good things that uh, the rest of our Muslim community will be enjoying during this month, inshallah. Questions and Answers with Sheikh Ibrahim Mouas. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back. Questions and answers uh, is the show. We will be with you right up until uh, 7 inshallah on the hour. Uh, we have mm -hmm. Sheikh Ibrahim Mouas answering the following questions. Assalamu alaikum Sheikh. Please some motivation on being tested in life as I'm going through a very difficult time and it looks as if it has no ending. <laughs> yeah, shame. This is uh, obviously something that uh, you know we all go through in one way or the other. And uh, one thing that we must understand is that, uh, you know, this life that we are living is a life in which Allah is going to test us, you know, in various different ways. Allah states this very clearly in Surah Al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 155, where Allah Ta'ala tells us, Allah says, we are definitely going to test you. 
And if you look at the Arabic construction of this word, the Arabic specialist will tell you that there is more than one indication on this word that the, 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 the word that is used is emphatic. There's a lot of emphasis placed on the fact that Allah is going to test us. So Allah says, we will most certainly, most definitely test you in different ways. And what are the ways in which Allah may test us? Min al-khawf. Sometimes you will be in a state of fear. You know, that is a test from Allah. Fear in your heart for something around you, for some crime or for some instability around you. Ju' sometimes Allah will test you through poverty, through uh, you know, not having enough uh, to eat or to survive. Naqsim min al-amwali wal-anfus. Allah will test you sometimes by taking away some of your wealth or taking away a life of a loved one. Right? And Allah says at the end of this verse, وَبَشِّرِ sabirin And glad tidings to those people who have patience. الَّذِينَ إِذَا أَصَابَتْهُمْ مُصِيبَةٌ And they are the ones when a calamity comes their way. قَالُوا They say, إِنَّا لِلَّهِ وَإِنَّا إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ To Allah, uh, from Allah do we come and to Him is our return. So uh, just as a general rule, my dear sister, this is something that all of us go through. Uh, of course, um, all my, uh, I, know if I said sister, but I don't know if it's a, I was going to say no, it could male. be a male. Yeah. It could be a male as well. Uh, but uh, I'm saying, my dear brother, my dear sister, if this is what you are going through, uh, just remember that you are not unique you know all of us we go through different tests and uh, perhaps just to give you motivation there's a wonderful hadith where the prophet actually says the people that experience the most tests in their lives are the prophets mm. then who then those who are the closest to them then those who are the closest to them so in actual fact if you are a believing person mm. you have iman in your heart you try your best to live a good life as a muslim but you are being tested a lot then you should actually be thankful because Allah Ta'ala is actually putting you almost on the same pedestal or rank of the Anbiya. Hmm. And that is what this hadith is actually saying. And then there is another wonderful hadith where the Prophet Sallallahu says to us, This hadith is in the book of Imam Al-Tirmidhi. The greatness of reward will always be in comparison to the greatness of the test that you had been given. So this is a contentment for us. The greater Allah is going to give a test for you, you must remember your reward is going to be equally as great. Mm. Look at what Allah says here. Look at what the Prophet says. That Allah Ta'ala, whenever He loves a group of people, He will definitely test them. Because Allah wants to see whether you will have satisfaction in your heart or not. And the moment you have satisfaction, says the hadith, then Allah Ta'ala will be satisfied with you. Mm. And if you have dissatisfaction or this, you are displeased, then remember Allah also will be displeased with you. So imagine Allah gives you this test and in your heart you say, Ya Allah, I know this is a test, but I am, I am pleased with what you sent to me. Now imagine you do that and Allah Ta'ala say, well, if that is the case, then I'm also pleased with you. <laughs> what greater thing can you ask for mm. than to gain the pleasure of Allah Ta'ala? In fact, the Quran says to us, وَرِضْوَانٌ مِّنَ اللَّهِ أَكْبَرٌ For Allah Ta'ala to shower you with His pleasure is the greatest gift that you can ever receive from Him. Right? So uh, this is some encouragement for you that if you are going through this difficult and as you say, it never ends, it seems to never end, just remember Allah loves you and He wants to purify you and He wants to elevate your status. And this is often what happens if you go through a test. When you come out on the other side, you then realize, Ya Allah, I've become so much stronger. I've become so much more a devout servant of Allah. How many times isn't it when a person is in that difficulty that he actually goes on his musalla? He makes tahajjud. So isn't it a, a rahmah actually if Allah gives you a test? 
because you would perhaps otherwise not have gone onto your musalla mm-hmm. for tahajjud or made excessive dua. So that is one of the ways in which Allah Ta'ala draws you to Him, draws you to, to be close to Him, is by giving you some kind of test so that you can realize that the only one that can help you is Allah. So you go on your musalla, you do your tahajjud. So inshallah, do all of that and you will see that the outcome will always be positive for you. Mm-hmm. May Allah make it easy upon you, inshallah. I mean, I mean, all the best for that individual and everyone, I think, that is having a bit of a tough time. Um, Allah just wants you to come closer to him, inshallah. Mm-hmm. Assalamu alaikum, um, Sheikh Khawa. What are the women's rights over the husband? And in turn, what is the man's rights over the wife when it comes to marriage? I'm sure that's a long Yeah, list. that is <laughs> a obviously a very, very long question <laughs> with a very long answer. Uh, and short uh, question with a long yes, answer. Yeah, very short question with long, uh, you know, implications. But nonetheless, uh, just very quickly, uh, and I think I, I mentioned this ayah already uh, before on the show also. وَلَهُنَّ مِثْلُ الَّذِي عَلَيْهِنَّ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ It's Surah Al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 228, where Allah Ta'ala says, And for them, meaning for your wives, they have equal amount of rights, the same way that you have rights over them, they have rights over you. So very quickly, what is the rights that a wife have over her husband? You will find that she has a lot of rights over her husband, uh, amongst which is, of course, the financial side of things. You'll find that from the from the day from day one when they get married, she has a certain right over him that he must provide a mahar or a dowry to her as a financial gift, which is compulsory. He must give it to her at the time of marriage. We also find that she's got a right over him in the sense that he must look after her financially, physically, he must see to her nafaqa, he must see that she has a place to say, he must see that she's got something to eat, he must see that she's got clothing to wear, he must see that she's comfortable, right? And th- these are all the, the rights that has been clearly stipulated in the Quran and in the Sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. Then she also has another right over him and that is that she's got a right that he should respect her, that he should treat her with honesty and with dignity and with integrity. Allah says in the Quran, وَعَاشِرُوهُنَّ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ And treat them and live with them in kindness, in goodness, in righteousness. Right? So these are all uh, the rights that she has obviously over him. Uh, she also has a right over him that he should keep her pure and he should keep a chaste. Meaning they should have a very good uh, intimate relationship. So that she doesn't have uh, to wonder or doesn't have to, her mind doesn't have to wonder and she doesn't have to look elsewhere. And that is some of the purposes of marriage, actually for the husband and wife to be intimate with one another. So she has that right over him as well. And then also if there was to be more than one wife, then of course she, is the right, she has the right of equal time as far as the other wives are concerned. You know, so there must be equal time and equal resources spent on all the wives. Then, with re- with regards to what rights does the husband have over the wife, we find that Allah has given him, for example, uh, the right of being the sultan of the house, the right of being the decision maker of the house. So obviously, he must consult with his family, and this is something which is very pertinent. We must at all times have mashura and consultation, but. The one that makes the final decision, that lies obviously in the hands of the husband. He is the one that makes the final decision. It's like a company. A company must have a CEO. And Mm. that CEO will finally make that decision Mm. after having consulted and taking into consideration everything. Uh, So the husband is that CEO within that marriage. And if the the wife abides by that, she will have a great reward from Allah Ta'ala. A woman that passes away 
and she passes away in a state where her husband was pleased with her, such a woman will definitely enter Jannah, says the Prophet ﷺ. Then obviously he also has similar rights uh, as, as she has, and that is for, for her also to provide comfort for him, and for her to look after his needs in terms of intimacy and all of that, uh, for her obviously to live in kindness with him, for her also to look after his belongings, to look at his household, those are all the rights that he again has over her. But as we mentioned, it is quite a long issue. And uh, perhaps one day we can have a time where we only speak on this and nothing else and give some detail on this issue, inshallah. inshallah. I'm, I'm glad Sheikh made the, the husband CEO, which means the wife can be COO, <laughs> <laughs> the operating officer, the executive operating officer. Yes, very <laughs> good, very good one, yeah. CEO and COO. Oh, okay. That's correct. <laughs> inshallah, Sheikh. We will. Uh, Put this forward to program and we'll have a dedicated show on the rights and responsibilities of men and women in their marriage. But after the short break, somebody wants to know what happens to the soul if Fajr Salah is missed more after this short break. Questions and answers back in a moment. Questions and answers with Sheikh Ibrahim Mouas. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back. Our last segment of the show. Just a few minutes left. Uh, and inshallah, we're going to cram in our last few questions that we have received. And the first one, as I mentioned before the break, uh, Sheikh, what happens to the soul when Fajr prayer is missed? Yeah, I'm not too sure uh, You know exactly what the person means by what happens to the soul per se. Uh, because obviously, um, you know, there has to be some textual evidence that speaks about these kinds of issues if ever we want to make a comment about it. Uh, I'll just quote one hadith that speaks kindly, kind of uh, about what happens to a person at the time of Fajr and he doesn't get up for Fajr. Mm. And this hadith is in obviously Sahih al-Bukhari, so it's an authentic hadith. The Prophet says when a person goes sleeps, uh, you know, goes to retreat at night, the shaitan puts a spell on this person. And he actually ties three knots onto the hair of this person. Now, it's not physical knots, but it's a kind of a spell that he casts on the person. And uh, he says, عَلَيْكَ لَيْلٌ طَوِيلٌ فَرْقُدْ And the, the spell uh, that he gives is, he says, May you sleep a long sleep, and may you have a long rest. Because obviously it is in his interest that the person does not wake up for Fajr. Then the hadith says, If you wake up and you remember Allah Ta'ala, so that's the first thing a Muslim normally does, when he gets up and he opens his eyes, the first thing that he says is, he says, Alhamdulillah, praise be to Allah, الذي أحيانا, who gave us life, بعدما أماتنا, after he had taken our soul away, وإليه النشور, and to Allah is our return. So that's the first thing that a Muslim says, he remembers Allah. So if that happens, one of the knots is untied, which was made by shaitan. فَإِن تَوَضَّأَ إِنْ حَلَّتْ أُقْدَهُ If he takes hudu, then the second knot is untied. فَإِن صَلَّا إِنْ حَلَّتْ أُقَدُهُ كُلُّهَا And if he finally makes his salah of fajr, then it means all three knots have been untied. فَأَصْبَحَ نَشِيطًا طَيِّبَ النَّفْسِ And then it means he will be for the entire day full of energy. He will be in a very good mood. Everything will go well for him for that day. وَإِلَّا but if he does not wake up for Fajr, then it means the three knots have not been untied and that entire day of his will be a day in which he is in a very foul mood, he will be in a very bad mood and also he will be very lethargic and very lazy mm -hmm. for that day if he had missed 
fajr so obviously that gives us an idea what happens to you if you don't make fajr and what happens to you if you do make fajr so in other words if you make fajr you are under the protection of allah against shaitan but if you do not make fajr in the morning then it means that shaitan has won the battle and you are basically going to live that day not under the protection of allah mm. and being really exposed to the trickery of shaitan may allah ta'ala forbid and protect us from that Okay, so Sheikh, uh, someone wants to know what is the meaning of Laylatul Qadr? Yeah, of course, Laylatul Qadr, which is in the month of Ramadan, there's basically three meanings that we can uh, ascribe to it. One is uh, we often call it the night of power. Laylatul Qadr, the night of power. And indeed, it is a night of immense power uh, simply because it is the night in which the Quran was revealed. And of course, the Quran is the word of Allah. It is uh, a divine script and so since that night had the honor of receiving the kalam of Allah, it became the greatest night that uh, that we as Muslims, uh, you know, can enjoy during the year. Uh, Then also, it is also called the night of power because of the power of the angels. The angels also come down on that night and they also engage in ibadah on this earth. Allah says, that on that night of Laylatul Qadr, all the angels, including Jibreel, they come down and they obviously uh, are also with the humans in this dunya, uh, participating in the ibadah. And then also, uh, we can say it's a night of power simply because Allah forgives on that night, He gives His mercy and His rahmah on that night. So it's a night of great goodness. And that is why also it is called the night of power. It can also, the second meaning of it is, the word Qadr can also mean in the Arabic language can also mean tadhiq. Tadhiq basically means uh, to be narrowed down. Narrowed down. So why is why is it called the night of uh, being narrowed, narrowed down? It's simply because we don't know what night is Laylatul Qadr. Mm. So we have to look for it. Right? And it's narrowed down only to one evening and you have to basically search for it. The third meaning which is also the night of Qadr is obviously it means that it's the night of decree. So it means people's uh, the deeds and things will be decreed on that night for the following year. Now we know there's two opinions. Does it happen on the night of Laylatul Nisfim in Sha'ban or does it happen on the night of Qadr? Most scholars say it happens on the night of Qadr. Some say to bring the two opinions together, it starts at Laylatul Nisfim in Sha'ban and it is concluded on the night of Laylatul Qadr. Be that as it may, the night of Qadr is then also called the night of decree because it is in that night that Allah Ta'ala decrees what is going to happen for the following year. So Ramadan is uh, coming up So we have a question around that A pregnant mommy says she's expecting Going into her second trimester And with Ramadan approaching Should she stop fasting or not What are the rulings on pregnant women fasting Sheikh? Yeah of course uh, The very first thing you should do is You should consult a Muslim doctor And whatever advice he gives you Whether to fast or not to fast You should try to then follow his advice Because medically he knows better What your condition is like And the condition of your fetus etc That's number one Number two is uh, You are going to look at the circumstances If he says to you That you have to break your fast And rather not fast You should ask him uh, Is it for the purpose of the baby Or is it for my purpose Am I going to break my fast For my health Or is it for the health of the baby and depending on the answer that he gives, that will now depend on uh, uh, what will be the ruling as far as your fasting is concerned. So if he says, look, you shouldn't fast because of your health, mm-hmm. not because of the baby, but because of your health. If that is the case, then you are like any other sick person that cannot fast. So it means after the month of Ramadan, you must simply then pay in those days. Mm-hmm. So you then don't fast, but on after the month, you simply pay in those days. And there is no fidya to be paid in that circumstance. Mm-hmm. If on the other hand, he says, look, you should not be fasting because of the sake of your baby. 
not because of the sake of yourself but for the sake of your baby in that case you will have to pay in those days after the month of Ramadan but you will also have to pay a fidya for each day that you missed during the month of Ramadan and that is if you broke your fast not for your purposes but for the purposes of the baby and if it is for both let's say the doctor says look you shouldn't fast because of your health and the health of your fetus both together then in that case we will say it is the same as scenario number one in which case you will only have to pay in the days after the month of Ramadan and you don't have to give a fidya so the only time that you really have to give a fidya alongside fasting the days in that you've missed is whenever you break your fast on behalf of someone else or for the purpose of someone else rather you break your fast for the purpose of the fetus for the purpose of saving a life for example if somebody is drowning so let's say I'm fasting and somebody is drowning mm. the only way I can save that person is to break my fast because otherwise I'm going to be too weak to save him mm. so in that case if I break my fast and I save the life of that person who is drowning then after the month of Ramadan I will have to pay in the day that I've missed and I will also have to give a fidya for that yeah. day because I broke my fast not for my own purposes but for the Save purposes someone. of saving someone else's life so that is the general ruling that applies in this question Jazakallah big shukran to Sheikh um, for clarifying that question and all other questions that has come through please note uh, you may send it on our SMS line 47913 and if you're going to do it via other platforms a fax, call, email um, WhatsApp please make it attention for Q&A um, Yasmina Peterson Jazakallah, Sheikh, for the time. And uh, until we meet again, answering questions uh, for our listeners, uh, have a good week, inshallah. Jazakumullah khaira to you also and to our honorable listeners. Uh, may Allah Ta'ala protect us for the coming week. Until we meet again, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalamu wa rahmatullah. That was Sheikh Ibrahim was. Note that you can call uh, reception and speak to Zerunisa to find out what classes Sheikh has on a weekly basis. 021-442-3500. And I bid you wassalam, have a good weekend and uh, be good and safe on the roads. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and a very good evening.